Well, we have finished our word pictures of the church, our images of the church series. And so for the next few weeks, for three weeks, I want to go to this book of Haggai. A little over a year ago, I was able to preach through the book in, in a one-shot overview. And as I did, I, I really enjoyed the themes of the book and just thought that would be fun to slow down and, and uh, go back through it again. And so that's what we're going to do. And uh, this time, we'll break it up into three messages. And there's a lot of encouragement for us, I hope, as, as a people. Uh, it's a really interesting book. It's super short. Probably don't flip there real often, one or two pages in your Bible. Uh, and yet there's, there's a lot of encouragement in the message that Haggai brings for the people. The book itself is all about rebuilding relationship with God. The nation of Israel, uh, a remnant, had returned to rebuild in Jerusalem, and they needed to work on rebuilding the temple, which was a picture of their relationship with God. And so the book is all about that theme of rebuilding the relationship. And this week, particularly what I want to think about, as I told the children in the children's message, is this idea of priorities. As you think about the priorities in your life, what's important to you, how do you go about defining them? And how do you decide what's most important? And how do you decide what's least important? And how do you arrange them? Uh, as I told the, the, the kids this morning, I, I, there was this way I used to think about priorities. I need you to use your imagination this morning. I didn't have a bookshelf, so this is a makeshift bookshelf, okay? So picture a bookshelf uh, on your wall. And I used to think of priorities almost like this, that you arrange your priorities in order. Over here, we're going to go most important. And on this side over here, this is least important. And I used to, I used to think about, well, I, I need to keep these things. Every now and then, they get out of order. And every now and then, some have to be added. And of course, what's supposed to be over here as most important? Well, clearly, it should be God, right? So we're going to take the biggest book and say, well, this, this always has to be the most important. I always used to, of course, uh, the things of God, reading scripture, evangelizing church, all these things, let's just put them in one big broad category called worship. This is a book on worship, by the way. So if worship is always supposed to be over here at the most important, but, but then I would try to keep the rest of them. And as I got older, I got more priorities and I'd put them in. And of course, then there would be these tricky things that would happen. Every fall, I would either be playing soccer, which I loved a lot, or I would start hunting in the woods. And so I always struggled to figure out, I mean, do I really love God the most? I mean, I know how much I spend time in God's Word every day, but I mean, what about when I'm in the deer stand for four hours? Now, does this mean I love hunting more than God? Uh, and, and what really probably broke this mold for me, there's no, there's no illustration that's perfect, but what, what I decided this doesn't work anymore, I got to college, and I met this real pretty girl named Anna. And it's like, wow, you know, uh, if I, I, this just doesn't work. I know God is supposed to be more important than Anna, but I mean, Anna, you know, and it's like this, but God has to be, but I know how much my thoughts are consumed, and it just, it just wasn't working for me anymore. I couldn't, I, I, and so I don't know if you struggle with that of thinking, well, I know that worship is supposed to be most important in my life, how does everything else fit into that? And I mean, what about the things that I know that are in my life that shouldn't even be on the shelf? How do we deal with these things? What about things that are on the shelf that aren't bad in and of themselves? How do we order those priorities? 
Well, the prophet Haggai shows up to the nation of Israel, and he has a message for them, and he wants them to realize that they've gotten some of their priorities out of line, and it's reflecting in their relationship with God. And he wants them to realize how important it is that they correct some of these missteps. And so he's going to have this message for them. So let's go through the passage together. We're going to try to cover all of chapter 1 this week. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So here's the first message. Let's set the context. Let's set the stage. What's, what's going on here at this point? Um, the year is 520 B.C., and there's a remnant of people that have returned to the city of Jerusalem. So let me back up and set the stage a little bit further. Remember when the nation of Israel was born? The covenant at Mount Sinai and God creates for himself a people and eventually they take and possess the land and, and, and God is working with them and he made promises to them there at Mount Sinai and he, and, and he says, this is what you need to do if you go through Leviticus and Deuteronomy. These are my laws. You keep these laws and there will be blessings. You break these laws and there will be curses. Well, as the people live for God, eventually they say, you know what, we would like to have a king over us. And God warns them that that's not going to turn out well. But they say, no, we want to be like all the rest of the nations around us. And so finally, God grants them a king. And it doesn't last very long. Very quickly, it does fall apart, just as God predicted. And, and the nation splits. And pretty soon one part goes into captivity and the other part is a little bit more faithful but you see over and over and over there's there's a good king every now and then that gets things right and it's just bad king after bad king after bad king but you know what God still loved his people God was gonna be faithful to them and God wanted to warn them, and he would send prophets to them, messengers, right? And the prophet had two ministries. One was foretelling. That's like predicting the future. This is what's going to happen. And the other ministry was foretelling. That was just like proclaiming the truth. And the prophet would come and say, look, listen, remember those, those promises at Mount Sinai where God says you have to obey these laws? Well, you're not doing it. And God would send a prophet, and the people would sometimes make some corrections. Sometimes they'd get back on track. Uh, and all along the way, the prophets would also predict to the future, and they would, they would talk about this glorious kingdom and a never-ending reign. And especially some of those promises became very hopeful when the nation was eventually in captivity. And in fact, one of the things that the prophets would warn, they would say, look, if we don't get our act together... Babylon is going to come and conquer us. And so that happens in the year 586. Jerusalem falls to Babylon, and the people are taken away. The city is destroyed. The temple is in ruins. And all those promises and hopes of a glorious forever kingdom, well, how's God going to do this now? The people are living in captivity. So what's it going to take to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the kingdom, to have all these promises fulfilled? And, and God would continue to send messengers. Well, that was the year 586, and remember, we're counting down to zero. And so this book takes place in the year 520, a little uh, right about 70 years after 
Jerusalem fell. And what happens after Babylon took them away? Eventually, Babylon gets conquered by Persia. And so the, the Persian king issues a decree and says, you know what, if some of you uh, Israelites, if the Jews would like to go back, you can go back to Jerusalem. You're allowed to rebuild the city. You can rebuild your houses. You can rebuild the temple. Now, hopes are high. Remember when they had these promises dropped in along the way that, that God would restore the nation. God would build a forever kingdom. Well, maybe it's happening. Some of them are going back and, and they're going to rebuild the city. They're going to rebuild things. And, and so that, that decree to go back happened in 539 and, and there was a, a, a group that initially started the rebuilding efforts, but some opposition arose. You can read about it in the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6. And the opposition came and the work falls off pretty quickly. Nothing happens to the temple. However, they do a little bit of work to their own houses. And Haggai comes along in the year 520. They've been there about 20 years. And they're right on the edge of harvest season. They're, they're about to bring in the crops for the year. And Haggai says, there's a, there's a problem. God has a message for you. And he says in verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, and that's kind of a, uh, maybe derogatory isn't the best word, but it's, it's, it's certainly not a loving word. These people, God's covenant people who are in rebellion against him, these people say that time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. What's going on for 20 years they haven't yet got the temple finished. Ah, time has not yet come. That's like the saying. Everybody knows it. Ah, the time has not yet come. Time, it's not time yet. We won't rebuild the temple yet. Time hasn't come. It's not time for that. And so Haggai has a message from God in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So that word for paneled there, it could, it could speak to the fact that their homes have a bit of luxury touch to them, but it also could be translated roofed houses. So their, their houses have roofs on them, whereas the temple doesn't have anything accomplished to it. It, it, is this appropriate? Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That message is going to happen several times in the book. Stop and think about it. Consider your ways. Evaluate what is taking place. And here's what he says. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns a wage does so to put them into a bag with holes. What's this point? What's his message? The futility of all their efforts and labors. And here they are at the edge of harvest, and, and they, they're, they're, they're realizing that though they have sown much seed, not much is going to come in. So they are living in relative poverty, even as you think about whatever that means that their homes have been furnished better than the temple. They're suffering some of those consequences of, of the laws that they violated and the curses that it has brought upon them. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Here, here's what he says. You went up to the hills and you got wood for your own houses. Go back. 
Go up to the hills and get the wood that's going to be required when Babylon burned the city and burned the temple. Uh, the stones still might have been in place, but if they were going to rebuild things, they needed some of the other wooden structures. Go up to the hills and bring the wood and build the house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Here's what God is telling the people. You're suffering the consequences of your actions. You've allowed my temple to lie in ruins, and because of that, I have not prospered any of your efforts. And he wants them to see and to realize that God is the one who is behind this, uh, these, the, the, the droughts, the famines, uh, those things that are not, not leading to any flourishing. He says, this isn't right. You need to take care of the temple. Rebuild it. Why? The purpose was so that God would take pleasure in it and that he would be glorified in it. We'll come back to that and look at it in a little bit. So here's what happens. That, that's the message. That happened August of 520. 23 days later, here's what happens in verse 12. Just so you know the characters, I've read some of them already. Remember Darius? He's the king of Persia. Then you also have Zerubbabel. He, he's kind of like the governor, even though, even though Israel at this point doesn't have a king, he's the heir to the Davidic throne. He would be the king if they still had the king. So Gov, the, Zerubbabel is the, the highest political guy in, there in Jerusalem, and Joshua is the high priest. So they're the leaders of the people. These are the characters that you're hearing about. Haggai is the one bringing the message. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people. Now, no longer are they these people. Now they're the remnant. Uh, that's, that's God's loving, affectionate term for he was going to fulfill his promises. Now the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And God has this message that he's there, he's with them. I'm with you, declares the Lord. In verse 14, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came, and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, on the second year of Darius the king. It only took 23 days from the first time that they heard the message before they decided, you know what? We've got to get our act together. And they decide to start working. And they decide to rebuild the house of the Lord. And they're actually going to put their hands to the plow 
well, okay, that, that, the more hands to the saw up in the hills to bring down the timber. And, and, and they want to work, and, and they want to see the house rebuilt. And so you see them actually respond. There's obedience. They, they do what the Lord asks, and they respond to the message of the Lord. So here's, this is kind of the message of Haggai chapter 1. We've, we've walked through it. Here's what the people need to know and see. Uh, next week, we'll look at what happens with their rebuilding efforts. But at this point, you just need to realize, number one, they, they had some seriously misplaced priorities. The, what, what, what time and energy and resources they had, they were putting into their own houses while the temple lied in ruins. But number two, they, they actually did respond to the word of the Lord. Uh, when the message came, they, they, they got to work. So if we try to take this message that God gave to his people there in Israel, and if we try to apply it in our own lives, what, what, would, what is the message for us today? What, what are some truths and applications that we can take out of this passage? What, what would Haggai say to us as a church? And as we think about our priorities as people, as we think about building our relationship with God, what are the truths that we need to know and understand? Uh, I, I kind of want to start at the end of what I read and work backwards just a little bit. I want to start with that, the way they responded to the message. One of the points of application that I would say is this, looking at the last three verses from 12 to 15, God's word always accomplishes God's work. God's word always accomplishes God's work. Notice how when the, the Haggai, the messenger, brought this word from the Lord, it accomplishes what God wants. The people begin to work. So if you look at this in uh, verse 13, there's a play on words that we don't pick up in the English, but in the original language, then Haggai, the messenger, take that word messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. So you've got messenger and message, and the message is, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord. So messenger, message, and the word worked, they all three sound very, very similar in the original language. And so you, you realize what, what uh, the prophet is recording for us is that the messenger brought the message which accomplished the work. And that's always the way it is, that God's word accomplishes his work. And we now have God's word recorded for us in Scripture. Whereas God in his kindness sends prophets to his people, now we have God's word recorded for us, and God's word is what accomplishes his work. Do we have confidence in that? We ought to. It's why we work to um, start our services with Scripture, why George just simply read the first chapter with no commentary. God's Word accomplishes His work, and there ought to be times that we just hear it read, and we're in it, and we believe it. And notice that the people, when they heard God's Word, they knew what to do. They, they knew the message that they were supposed to submit to. And we as a people ought to be people who, who understand God's word. We submit to it. We see it as authoritative. We realize that it's God's word that accomplishes his work. And that's always the way it is, that God's spirit through God's word accomplishes his work in his people. 
So let us put our confidence there. A second point of application that I would make is this. Notice some of the covenant curses, the discipline that is on the people. And you, and you look at that, and part of you looks at it and say, here's a people that they're, they're living in relative poverty. They're experiencing famine and drought. And why? Is that because God is harsh? Is that because God is unloving? Is that because God is cruel? Is that because God enjoys hurting these people that weren't following him. No. No, God loves his people. You see that the discipline here was the kindness of God to get a hold of their attention and to say, remember what we talked about? Leviticus, Deuteronomy, if you don't follow me, here's what's going to happen. And, and in my kindness, I'm going to allow these, these things of discipline in your life because I want your hearts I want your worship. I want your priorities to be right. And notice the kindness of God in his discipline, even for these people. The third thing that we need to think about here, excuse me, in way, by way of making application, the third thing that we need to think about is uh, even just understanding what was the importance for the nation of Israel in rebuilding the temple. What did the temple represent? Why was it so important that this brick and mortar building, this stone and wood structure of the temple, why did it need to be rebuilt? Remember how God worked for his um, Old Testament covenant people that the temple was literally the very dwelling place of God. It was the means that God had provided that, that because of the temple, because of the priests, because of the sacrificial system, there was a way of relationship for the people, for God's people with their God, so that God in his glory could dwell among his people. I want you to see uh, this verse from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 25, verse 9. Exactly, and so remember, the temple comes from the tabernacle. When the people were wandering in the wilderness, God initially established this temporary structure called the tabernacle that eventually then, once they became permanent, was able to be built into a permanent structure of the temple. And this is what God was doing with the tabernacle. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. And that was not the verse I thought it was going to be. I gave you the wrong one. It was supposed to be a verse talking about the glory of God dwelling among his people. I think that I can find it if I get there very quickly. His point was that in the tabernacle, the very presence of God, all of God's glory would dwell there with his people. You're going to have to take my word for it. I will, I will find it at another time. The, the, the purpose of the tabernacle was that God's glory in, in the way that he dwelt among his people would be right there with his people. So, what is this for us as, as New Testament believers? Remember, we were just coming out of a, a few weeks ago, I talked about the church and the church being a building. And what was the building? The church is now the temple. And we are priests, a priesthood together in the temple. And as living stones, as Peter talks about, we're being fashioned together. So here's 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 identifies this building as a temple. And so here's the point now as we think about this. I want you to, we've got we've to make the transfer from Old Testament, Old Covenant, to, to New Testament, New Covenant. In the Old Testament, when Haggai brought this message, there really needed to be an emphasis on the brick and mortar building of the temple. Why? Because, because God's presence and dwelling with his people rested on that. It wasn't because they necessarily needed a beautiful structure, though God's glory certainly demanded a beautiful structure. The, the structure was the way, the, the brick and mortar structure was the way that God's glory dwelt among his people. So unfortunately, sometimes when you hear the book of Haggai preached, it can be uh, easy to just transfer this over and say, all right, if we want God's glory here, we need a brick and mortar building. And we're going to have this expansion campaign. And we all need you to dig deep into your resources because we need to have our priorities right. And don't spend your money on yourself. You need to spend it on the brick and mortar house of the Lord. Now, there, okay, there's some, there can be appropriate tie-in and application there. But that's not the scenario that we're in this morning here at Shawnee. We're not in a building campaign by any means. Uh, but what we do need as a people is to have our emphasis on building the temple, the New Testament temple, that we as a people, as a church, are living stones being fashioned together. Our priority should still be the very dwelling place of God in all of his glory. And and this church that he has put us into in those relationships. That, that we would think about that in terms of our, what we want, what, what is our priority? It ought to be the glory of God, the worship of God, God dwelling among us. My priorities should not be the ease and comfort of my own life, but rather the glory of God as, as he dwells with us in his church among us together as a people, one another. May that be our priority. May we be committed to those truths. May we stop and recognize and realize, you know what, we, we as people need to have the church and one another as our priority. Why? Because we need to have the glory of God as our priority. I appreciate it even last week as, as Kevin Rue preached on uh, the, the idea of the church being broken and just brought some of that application of, of the importance of gathering together as a people on our regular gathering days. And I'm not saying that there's not appropriate reasons to miss church. I'm not saying that there might not even be extended times where it has to happen. I'm, I'm saying it, if it's the regular often pattern, what is it saying about our priorities? There'd be some priorities you'd look at and say, yeah, justified. That makes sense. There'd be other priorities you'd look at and say, something's off. Something's off in what we're worshiping and what's important to us in, 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 uh, in what ought to be of the highest value. 
and, and, and not, not just the time in that sense, but even in terms of our resources and the way that we use the talents, the way we use the finances that God has given to us. This is kind of a particularly an interesting year for Shawnee. We're, we're not in a building campaign. We're not asking you uh, to dig deep for some funds and projects. In fact, as we, we, we're kind of anticipating as we get to the end of the year, because of the way that uh, we've spent most of the year without one of the pastoral staff members, there's, there's probably going to be a very sizable surplus and even for some other reasons. And we as a people are going to think, well, what, what, do we, what do we do now with these resources that God has given us? It's kind of an exciting opportunity. And, and we'll even have to probably think about, well, there's some brick and mortar projects on the building that need to be done. Why? Not, not necessarily because we as a people want to meet our own comforts and needs. We look at it and we say, well, you know what? If, if, if gathering together as a church people and if, if proclaiming the word is a priority, then the brick and mortar building can be a, a proper platform for the word a platform for ministry so that we can see God accomplish things. And so we'll ask God to use those things, not because the brick-and-mortar building is important, but because the presence of God is important, the, the, the church functioning and operating as it should, and the, the relationships within the church. And so we could even think about, well, what are some projects that could help towards that end? Even, even thinking about, is there, is there projects that, that are outside of this building that will help proclaim the word and the glory of God? And that we say, be, because of his message going forth, we want others to know about him. I don't have dreams. I don't have plans. Uh, pray for us as we think about that. Uh, it would be an exciting opportunity to think about. Lastly, I want you to think about then in terms of application. I want you to think about worship as a priority. What does that mean to have worship as a priority in our life? If you come back to verse 7, why did God have Haggai, his prophet, tell the people to get to work on the temple? Why did he tell them that their priorities were out of place? It, it wasn't simply to remove the curses of the covenant. It wasn't, hey, if you want to start having a better harvest, if you want to have a full pantry of food, then you need to start doing these things. Rather, it was the glory of God. It was the presence of God dwelling with his people. If you look at verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. This is the reason. God wants to take pleasure in dwelling with his people, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. That was why God wanted all of this done. That was why he pursued them with their kindness, because he wanted to take pleasure in their relationship with him, and he wanted to be glorified in him. He wanted to be glorified by them. One commentator said it this way, the ultimate purpose of this project is the pleasure and glory of God. Ultimately, they are not to do it for relief from curse, but for the pleasure and glory of God. I want you to think about that priority, that, that, that God's glory and, and us being satisfied in him and us as a people dwelling with him ought to be our greatest and highest priority as worshipers. What, what is the greatest priority in our life? It ought to be the worship 
of God. Why would we say that? Uh, And when you think of worship, what do I mean? Am I just talking about Sunday morning when we gather like this? Am I talking about when we sing? What does worship look like? Well, you've heard me say it before, and I, I try to find ways to repeat it because it's such, a, it's such a fundamental truth that's easy to forget. There's a pastor and author named Paul Tripp, and he says it this way, that worship is first our identity before it's ever our activity. Worship is first our identity before it's ever our activity. Here's what he's saying. Think about it. Sometimes we think only Christians are worshipers, those of us that gather in here on Sunday mornings. That's not true. You don't divide people into those that do and those that don't worship. Everyone is by nature a worshiper. The only difference is the object of whom they worship. Romans chapter 1 talks about how all of humanity was created in such a way Uh, that once sin darkened the mind, the worship of the creation was exchanged for the worship of the Creator. So you see it in Genesis, in the creation story. And you see that God creates Adam and Eve, and there's this beautiful relationship, and that life is worship. They're experiencing God face to face, and they're dwelling with Him. They are worshipers by nature. As, as they take pleasure in God, as God takes pleasure in them, and then sin enters the picture, and the worship of creation is exchanged for the worship of the Creator. And Adam puts himself in God's place and says, I, the created one, should be worshipped. And worship is then exchanged, and you see God in His loving kindness provide a way to take care of that sin. That God provides a promise, and through the nation of Israel, he provides a Messiah, one that would come to the cross, and that would make a way for creator and creation to be restored again. And that Christ would give his life on the cross to die a death that takes the place for our sins. Because, because of the fact that we all worship our, ourselves and worship the creation, we sin, we deserve death and separation from the creator. But because of Christ dying in our place, that provides a sacrifice, an atonement for sin so that you and I could have right relationship with God. So that by faith and repentance, when we turn from our sins and place our finished work on Christ and what he's accomplished for us on the cross, we can have new life. We can have eternal life. We can have the forgiveness of sins and we can once again experience worship, relationship with God as it was meant to be. You have this quote in your bulletin by A.W. Tozer, and here's what he says. The priorities of God in sending his son to die and rise and live and be at the right hand of God the Father was that he might restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship, that we might come back and learn to do again that which we were created to do in the first place, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, to spend our time in awesome wonder and adoration of God, feeling and expressing it and letting it get into our labors and doing nothing except as an act of worship to Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That because of God and what He's accomplished in the gospel and His love for us through the person of Jesus Christ, now all of life can be spent in worship to the glory of God. 
so that if I love my wife as scripture says a husband should love his wife, I'm doing that to the glory of God and that's worship. If, if I work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord in my job, that that's worship. If I show kindness to my neighbors as I ought, that's worship. Even in my hobbies and interests that I pursue, there's a way to do those things such that I say, how can I love God through this and love my neighbor? And yes, I have this great interest and passion in this area, and I need to get to know my neighbor, and he might go with me in it. And that's worship. And that your job as an engineer, as a school teacher, as a doctor, as a Wawa attendant, brings just as much glory and worship to God as a missionary in Africa. How beautiful is that, that we as a people can worship God through these things. And so, though no illustration of worship is perfect, and I'm sure this isn't perfect, I finally realized we don't go from most important to least important. Worship doesn't stay over here. Worship is the entire bookshelf. A book doesn't make it on the shelf if it's not worship. If you have the wrong book on the shelf, you're worshiping the wrong thing. And we got to look at our priorities and say, is this what should be on here? Am I worshiping God through everything that is on my plate? And that's what worship is for us as a people. And, 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 and as we as a people, how sad would it be if, if God looked at us and said, you're ignoring your relationship with me. You're spending all of your time on these other pursuits. It's not right. It's not right that my relationship with you lies in ruins and it's getting the leftovers and it's getting... It's not right while you're spending all your time on other priorities. May that not be true of us as a people. I'll conclude with this story. There's, there's a pastor and author who in one of his books told a story of spending time at his mountain retreat in Montana. And he would watch over a lake and for several weeks he enjoyed watching the swallows. And it was the time of year where they had little chicks in their nest and the swallows would bring the food to their mates and they would bring the food to their chicks until one day with great excitement he looks out over the lake and there at a branch about four feet high above the water there's three baby chicks. And he gets excited because he's going to get to watch the mama and papa swallow push the fledglings out of the nest and teach them how to fly. And so one by one, the swallow uh, pushes the chick out to the edge of the twig until it can hold on no longer. Push, push, push. And the first one plops off and tumbles the four feet to the water. And at some point before it hits the water, those fledgling wings take off and these inexperienced wings fly. And that little swallow learned how to fly. Number two, same thing, pushes off flies. Number three, was not so excited about this. And, and, and mama push and push, and, and, and this one is clinging on for dear life, right? And push to the end and the end and a little more. And, and at the last moment, the, the, the talons release enough that whoop, flips upside down and clings again. And, and, and the swallow is pecking at the talons. Let go, let go, let go. And at the last minute, when, when this swallow could have 
take the pain no more, uh, and, and finally decided that the pain of being pecked was greater than the pain of falling and the fear of falling. It let go, and you know what happened? It flew. And away it goes, and these fledgling wings flew. And here's what the author said. The mature swallow knew what the chick did not, that it would fly, and that there was no danger in making it do what it was perfectly designed to do. Birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely. They can walk, they can cling, but flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living at their best gracefully and beautifully. Brothers and sisters, we were made to worship the creator. We can worship creation. I fail at that daily. And some of us are clinging to the worship of creation. And we don't want to do what God has created us to do in all of his glory and goodness. We were made to worship him. Elevate that priority together here in our church. It's the most beautiful thing that it's what God has created us to do. And let us be a people who are serious about it and set those priorities accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask for your help and grace in our lives. We want to worship you, the creator. Pray that we would see you as that good, that we would see you as that great, that we would see you as that worthy of our worship, that our hearts would be revived to worship you, that whatever rebuilding in our relationship of you needs to happen, that you would work to order out those priorities. Revive us again, we ask and pray in Christ's name, amen.